90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how's your week been? Hey, John, it's been pretty good. Uh, we had some excitement on our field trip, as usual, this weekend. <laughs> so this is with your intro to field class again? Yes, that's right. Uh, we went back to our same place, but what was exciting about it is we were at this road cut, and we're sitting there measuring section, and so that just means we're measuring the rocks that were there and describing them in exquisite detail. <laughs> and as we're sitting there, all this stuff started falling down out of the sky on us. Uh, people started freaking out, but it turns out there was a big grass fire, and so we had a whole bunch of ash that was raining down while we were sitting there measuring section. So it made for an exciting day. <laughs> yeah. How close was the grass fire? Uh, you know, I ran up to the ridge, and it was at least two miles away, so it wasn't too bad, and it wasn't. It started to get windy, so we called off our field day early just in case. But no, nothing was harmed or no, nothing burned besides the field, so... Everything was okay, but it was super interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Seems to be a, a theme of geologic fieldwork. I know out in the Colorado <laughs> area for some, for field camp in the summer, we had kind of similar problems. Uh, yeah, that's true. Two years ago, we had to pull the entire class uh, off of their mapping project for two days because of grass fires. So Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really bad. Well, so speaking of things falling from the sky and things burning... We had uh, an interesting incident this week well, here in Pennsylvania. I can't wait to hear about it with that intro. What happened? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think it was Tuesday, so that'd be February 17th, we had a meteor enter the atmosphere, and it was a decent-sized one. So it was a couple feet in diameter, about 500 pounds, Ooh. and their current estimate oh. is that it entered at a speed of 45,000 miles per hour. That's huge, actually. Uh, two feet? <laughs> I mean, have they found it yet? Uh, as of this recording, no, they haven't. Okay. They were going to look northeast of Pittsburgh, though, because if there are any pieces, that's where they would expect them to be. And this was all caught thanks to NASA's Fireball Camera Network. Okay. So is this a network that's specifically for looking for meteors, I'm guessing, by the name? It is. So there are 15 cameras. And they have these really wide-angle lenses letting them view the entire sky. And they're black and white and optimized for recording at night. And so they're kind of grouped around the country. And with these, they have overlapping fields of view. They can actually back-calculate not only uh, where the meteor was, how fast it was coming in, but they can go all the way back to the orbit of the meteor in space <laughs> oh, before it intersected the Earth. God, I love science. That is so awesome. <laughs> Yeah, that's a geometry problem that you really don't want to deal with. All the lens corrections <laughs> oh, gosh, I and bet. everything on these cameras is horrendously complicated, but they've got it down. And uh, these stations are grouped around the country, like I said. Luckily, here in Pennsylvania, western Pennsylvania and Ohio area, uh, there is a network of four of them. Uh, the rest are down kind of Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, or in the desert southwest. Excellent, excellent. So this was caught on camera. Where can I find this? I have sent you the link, and it is in the show notes for the best fireball camera video. So I want to hear your reaction to watching this. <laughs> okay, so I, I didn't hear about this until just now. So I'm going to the link, and I'm going to watch this. And this is from the NASA fireball cameras. This is a thrilling listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was huge. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. That was terrifying. It looks like it's going to slam straight into that camera, which I know is an aberration of the spherical lens. But wow, it's really bright. <laughs> so the, the brightness magnitude briefly exceeded that of the full moon? Wow. Okay, you can see that. Yeah. Yes. So it was very bright in the sky. And they were up as soon as this happened, you know, all all of the, the space weenies went crazy. <laughs> so there's an animation that I'll also put a link to in the show notes that is what you would see if you were riding on the meteor from space. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> as it comes towards Earth. Man, nerds never disappoint me. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I know what no, I'm doing after the show. <laughs> yes, and these are all, you know, courtesy NASA's uh, meteor program, the NASA Meteor Watch program. And... I've been looking through some data, and there may be a blog post up by the time this show comes out, if I find anything, of looking at National Weather Service radars for this event. Right. That, um, that's been done before. I mean, radars capture everything. They're not just on when, uh, you know, when it's raining or snowing or anything. Um, I know that when I worked at the Severe Storms Laboratory, we did a study on the breakup of the uh, Columbia. You could read, you could see the debris in the sky as the space shuttle exploded with just regular weather service radar. Right. And I mean, as this meteor is coming through the atmosphere, it's going to be spalling off pieces. There's going to be a dust trail. And, and of course you're going to have all this turbulence that this is a dual pole radar that it was near. Right. So that's going to be able to capture a lot more than the old WSR 88 D's, you know, because you're seeing polarization and, you know, X and Y space, and so you can really capture tiny perturbations. But, I mean, tiny. It's a two-foot meteor. That thing's right. huge. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's really fascinating, and hopefully we'll hear more about it and see more really cool graphics as this goes on. Uh, but... I don't know how much cooler you can get than a video <laughs> riding a meteor, but I digress. <laughs> But I think that's a good way to go into our topic for today, because I'm sure this was a pretty old rock. Uh, you would imagine that it was. And I mean, that's what I'm interested in, looking at old rocks. Um, the asteroid belt has probably got rocks that are around since the beginning of our solar system, right? So that's really, really old. And geologic time is something that we're going to talk about today, because it's also really old. <laughs> It is really old and really big, especially, I mean, even just going back to the beginning of our solar system, uh, much less the beginning of the Earth or going back to the beginning of the universe, it just absolutely boggles your mind trying to think about these things. Right, exactly. And it's this concept that we talk about so much, and yet we don't ever take the time to stop and think about how big time is. I mean, it's just this thing, and we take it for granted, and we throw around things as geologists saying, you know, 500 million years ago, a billion years ago, like it's no big deal. But it's so vast, it's really hard to understand. It is, and I think a lot of people don't think of time in kind of the framework of it's another coordinate. If you're looking at a rock, it currently exists on a place on Earth. We describe that the latitude and the longitude, maybe an elevation, But it also was deposited at a time. It's just another coordinate, and you can run that time backwards or forwards, just like you can run back and forth in different dimensions of space. So it's kind of a a weird 
multi-dimensional way of thinking that you have to get used to as a geologist. Yes, uh, that's sort of mind-blowing thinking about right there. Um, it's something, the more rocks that I see, the more outcrops I visit, the more I start to think about time. Um, maybe it's just because I'm getting older and I think about time, but that's so true because how that rock exists in the time that you're viewing it, you take a lot of things for granted and make a lot of assumptions about how it may have existed a hundred million years ago or even 10 million years ago or one million years ago. And those assumptions can lead you down the wrong path when you're trying to understand the history of a certain rock. Yeah, it's, it's hard to put yourself there when you're standing at you know 30 odd degrees north on dry land saying, well, gee, this was uh, right below the equator and in shallow water when this rock was deposited. That's exactly right. Uh, my favorite example, and I get very excited about it, as you can probably tell already, <laughs> um, but that, that I like to talk about in my class is I talk a lot about Mount Everest. Obviously, this is a really geologically interesting place. It's the tallest mountain on Earth, um, but it's also you know really sacred to the Tibetan people and mm -hmm. the people around there, too. But what's super great about Mount Everest, just besides it being tall, is that the top of it is limestone. 29,000 feet up in the air is a rock that formed <laughs> 10,000 feet below the ocean. And it's fairly young. So you think that geology is really boring because nothing happens. But in the last, you know, not even 100 million years, this rock has traveled over 40,000 feet from the bottom wow. of the ocean to the top of the world. Unbelievable. That's incredible. <laughs> exactly. It's one of my favorite things to tell people because they're like, geology's boring. Nothing ever happens. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and people have all kinds of examples uh, to try to get a grasp on the time scale. I know I've heard uh, examples of saying, okay, stretch both of your arms out. And now if your left middle fingernail is the beginning of the earth, I believe, and your right fingernail is the present, and you run a nail file across that once, you erased modern man. Yes. Yep. I use that one in class, and I find, like, my arms are outstretched right now as I'm thinking about it. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yes, and then in geologic time, you know, we'll have a time scale posted on our website for those of you that aren't geologists, but... Most or of that the, are geophysicists. Yes, because I know you don't have it memorized, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> even though all good geoscientists should. And if you've taken my class, you definitely have it memorized. Um, but if you've got your arms outstretched and you look from your left fingernail is the beginning of the earth, most of the history of the rocks on the surface don't even begin until you get to your right wrist. Wow. So that's like a massive amount of time that we just don't really know much about the earth because we don't have the rocks to talk about it. Yeah. And I mean, there are all kinds of examples. If you do a quick Google search, which I just did, there <laughs> are examples with beer, of course, and for geoscientists. <laughs> uh, Those are the best examples. <laughs> right. But one that uh, this reminds me of, I don't know, have you watched either the original Cosmos or the more modern Cosmos? Uh, yes, both of, yes to both of those. <laughs> okay, so something Carl Sagan came up with in his uh, Dragons of Eden book, which was the cosmic calendar. It's a really fun way to think about uh, time on a cosmic scale as well. So that says, if the beginning of the universe is at midnight on January 1st, and the end of the calendar year is 
December 31st, so that's you know, going to represent the present. Uh, he has all these events marked, and it's really interesting to go look at. So, for example, agriculture begins on December 31st mm. at 11.59 and 32 seconds. That's PM, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is um, unbelievable. That's so unbelievable. Yeah, anatomically modern humans are 11.52 p.m. on December 31st. Wow. See, Mm -hmm. that puts into the scope. I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson did an excellent version of this as well, you know, and it just puts into the scope of how short a time we've been here and all the things we're trying to understand or that we think we understand, right? You know, we've only yeah. been here what, a second, <laughs> six seconds <laughs> as things that look like humans, like, or six minutes. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. But we should probably go back to geological okay, time. Okay, yes, it's yes. It's slightly more grass. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So, you know, the Earth was formed four billion-ish years ago. And how do we know this? Well, not from rocks, because the oldest rocks we have are about uh, 3.8 billion years. I think... Um, Recently, they found another rock that they think is about 4.2 billion years, so even older. And these rocks are actually, they represent, they're called banded iron formations. And they represent rocks that were uh, deposited in water. They have a really good chronological signature that you can use to to date them. So to determine, not to take them out and buy them beer, but (laughs) to determine how old they are, right? And that's the beginning of you know, geologic time using rocks as a way to understand how it's made. Like geologic time is really big. It's really deep. It's what we call deep time. So back when the earth was made, we know how old the earth is, but not because we have rocks that are that old. Uh, Not many rocks still exist from when the earth was made. That particular eon in what we've defined as the geologic time scale is called the Hadean. And it accurately means hell-like right right and i mean this brings up the geologic time scale itself has kind of these subdivisions that can get really confusing so we should be clear (laughs) on that Uh, you mentioned that was an eon and so there are periods which are the shortest eras which are longer eons and then super eons so there are kind of four subsets in this time scale right well there's actually even more than that um after periods comes an even smaller uh thing called epics and then you have ages and so i mentioned those not to be nitpicky but because when you're studying a specific rock you will name it by age if you can and so just like john just said as you go on up through eons the time scale gets bigger so like the Archean and the Proterozoic Eon are what we call the Precambrian. And that stretches from 4 billion years, basically as old as we have rocks, to 500 million years ago. That's that huge amount of time that goes from the left fingernail all the way to your wrist. And that's, you know, the majority of Earth. But as we move up through the Paleozoic, the Mesozoic, and the Cenozoic, you get... 500 million years to the present and there's a ton (laughs) of different uh ages throughout those years because we have a lot of rocks from that time period 
Right. Okay. So, yeah, I pulled up a very detailed geologic time scale, <laughs> and there are so many subdivisions, it's a little bit hard to look at. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Um, we usually, as geologists, I mean, you're doing pretty good if you can know all the periods of the Paleozoic, the Mesozoic, and the Cenozoic. I count that as okay in my book. You could get a B in my <laughs> class if you knew those things. <laughs> so, how do you talk to your class about this? Um, exactly. So it's really hard, especially when I teach non-major classes, because it's just this thing that we don't sit and think about. You know, we think about at 7 a.m. we get up, and then at midnight we go to bed, and then it happens all over again. Um, and that sense of happening all over again is actually really important when you're talking about the geologic time scale and just geologic time in general. So explain that a little bit. You're saying the kind of the history repeating itself? Uh, theme? Exactly, exactly. Um, Stephen Jay Gould, who is a magnificent scientist and author, even though I saw him speak once and he's crazy, he was crazy, <laughs> um, but super brilliant guy. And he wrote this book called Time's Arrow, Time's Cycle. And it's sort of about these things that we struggle with, like, does time just march forward from a singular point, or is time more cyclical and circular in nature? I, I think good arguments can be made for either one of these. Um, I talk a lot about this in the Native Science class that I teach, because a lot of Native teachings, and not just Native American teachings, but... Um, Far Eastern teachings as well talk about time as a circle. I'm sure you've seen those things. They're called mandalas. Um, so they're big, like, circular sand paintings that Tibetan monks will do. And there are similar things in uh, Native American. You see circular dream catchers, circular sand paintings done by the Navajo. And those things represent time as well. And so some of these ancient um, and not ancient, modern Native cultures see time as cyclical, which we do in geology as well. Yeah, it's interesting. And I guess if you're thinking of this still as a coordinate, that's how mathematically I want to think about it, uh, it's just a different type. And it's very nonlinear, which could be very confusing. I've always thought of time as more of a straightforward, uh, you start at the beginning, you progress to the present. The past is this uh, immutable, uh, kind of a historic tuple of events. <laughs> So mathematically, you know, I think of time as this circle that's moving forward, but it's constantly, you know, rolling as it's moving forward. So there's a little bit of, in my mind, there's a little bit of circularness and arrowness to geology. And this is sort of the fundamentals of geology in general. It's a thing that we call uniformitarianism, right? Do you, do you remember what that is, John? <laughs> <laughs> I do. So I remember that there are kind of these competing views of how we want to view geologic processes across time, and that uniformitarianism was one of those. That's uh, Hutton's idea, if I remember correctly. Uh, right. It it goes back to Lyell and Hutton and the old white guys in Britain who talked about defining these sort of characteristics. And uniformitarianism is just simply the present is the key to the past. So things that we see happening today also happened in the past. And it's basically the tenet with which we can do geology, right? Because we observe stuff today and we apply it to the rock record. So we're saying that deposition occurs just as it did many years ago. Right, now. exactly. And 
other maybe igneous processes. Right. And so there's a lot of problems with uniformitarianism. <laughs> um, the competing, um, the competing at the time, scientific sort of, you could be a uniformitarianism or you could be a catastrophist. And so that was saying that like the history of the earth was punctuated by these huge catastrophic things that weren't necessarily recreated throughout the geologic time. Now, wait a second. So gradualism was in there somewhere as well. And I thought that was kind of a mix between these of things change, but not abruptly as in catastrophism. Is that right? Uh, right. I think that came a little bit later with the whole, you know, let's try to let's try to marry these two ideas. And I think that's probably the best way to go. Like, OK, we look at things and processes that occur today and we have to use those to describe the past. It's all we have. Right. And, but also there are these catastrophic things that happen. Um back when William Buckland was talking about catastrophism, you know, they were talking about things like the great flood of the Bible, explaining a lot of different extinction events, possibly. Hmm. Right? Okay, yeah. So there were, I think, five major extinction events from when I was kind of doing my homework that you had <laughs> given me for this show. Um, and, you know, there's everybody knows the kind of the Cretaceous Tertiary. That's the the big meteor the rock that killed the dinosaurs. Extinction. Right, and we actually don't call it the Tertiary anymore, but that's that's for later on. <laughs> <laughs> but then you've got uh, several others, and kind of the there's a link to these in the show notes now. But one that I remember hearing lots of people talk about was the Permian, which was and that's the Great Dying, where 96 percent of all species just died. Right. Um, you know, we talk about in our intro that 90% of all scientists that have ever lived live today. Well, it's kind of shocking if you think that 99% of the things that have ever lived on Earth throughout Earth's entire history have already died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everything that's around since this extinction was evolved from 4% of the original species. Uh, exactly. And some even say as little as 2%, actually. Wow. So it's, yeah, I mean, some estimates are 98% of all life died at the end of the Permian. What's really cool about that mass extinction, well, not if you were living then, but <laughs> what's neat now is there's still a lot of debate over what caused it. Um, some of my research kind of dovetails into this as well, because the Permian was a really weird time. You know, we had a supercontinent. We don't know how that sort of affected the climate of the time. And then the big thing that we've always thought happened, you know, these big mass extinctions probably came from a bolide, which means, you know, an asteroid or a comet hitting the Earth, a really big one, not a two-foot right. one, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, miles across one hitting the Earth. But the problem with the Permian is that we can't find the hole that it made. <laughs> Right, and so I think uh, a few of the other things that have been proposed, and one is volcanic-based, right? Just this massive kind of flood basalt eruptions. Uh, right, and that's also um, that also occurred at the one extinction where everyone knows about um, at the end of the Cretaceous when the dinosaurs died. Um, it was a combination of all these big volcanic eruptions because volcanic eruptions spew a whole lot of weird gases that really screw up the atmosphere. <laughs> and because of that all the weird gases plus all the ash and then a huge asteroid slamming into what's now the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, that messed up the climate for the dinosaurs. And that's how we were 
as mammals were allowed to evolve into what we are today is because of the effects of climate from volcanism and these extinctions. And the in-Permian is sort of not consensus by far, but a lot of consensus is coming that there was something climatic that happened. Maybe it was abrupt, and this is where um, some of my research lives as well, is talking about how long did this take? You know, was this an abrupt climatic shift? Can we use this climatic shift that happened in deep time to explain, you know, what's happening today and maybe even model what's coming in our future geologic time? So that goes back to even though these are kind of punctuated catastrophic events are possibly very punctuated, they happen over and over. So it's back to the cyclic nature exactly. that you were talking about. Exactly. So it's 248 million years ago might be able to help us now. Right, exactly. And I mean, that's not the only one. As you said, there were pretty much five big major extinctions. Um, and these are sort of what we define as, or help to define the geologic time scale. Um, we have, just like you said earlier, we have all these different divisions within the time scale, and many of the big divisions are defined by these catastrophic events, right? So we say the end Permian extinction because we've defined a new period after that extinction. We use the fossil record to determine, you know, the Permian lasts from approximately, and I say approximately because it's really always changing. <laughs> like, right. It's changing a lot. So like the Permian lasts from about 300 million years ago to around the start of the Triassic, which we've now defined as about 240-ish. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I say that, but, um, and that's defined by this big mass extinction. The same thing throughout the Mesozoic. You know, we have a mass extinction at the end of the Mesozoic, and then the Cenozoic is sort of the rise of the mammals. So geologic time is based a lot on the biology as well as the rocks that have been uh, deposited and living over our Earth's history. Right. And it kind of makes sense because these make some really distinct layers. I know there are lots of places in the world where people have wanted to go and point and say, for example, this is the KT boundary. And you can tie all of these rocks together in time because of one distinguishing feature that is global or semi-global. Exactly, exactly. Um, that sort of lends itself towards the catastrophic nature of these events. If it's something, if you're going to define these boundaries, they have to be something that you can talk about all over the world because we use this geologic time scale all over the world so that all the scientists are on the same page. Um, so we keep saying words like deposited and fossils and things, and these are all in sedimentary rocks, right? Because igneous rocks don't tell us anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that Send because... Send your hate mail to Shannon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, my advisor calls them burnt rocks. I tend to agree because I'm a sedimentologist. <laughs> but... <laughs> So igneous rocks can tell us how old they are, but they don't really tell us about their environment. Sure, you can see if they formed above the ground or below the ground, but that's it. <laughs> so sedimentary rocks, right? You get this whole kind of depositional story. And I know people like to come up with these stories and come up with these diagrams. I know you and I have talked before about them sometimes being geophantasmograms. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's absolutely true. <laughs> um, so these sedimentary rocks are like these layered rocks that you see. They're the sandstones, the silts, the limestones, you know, carbonates and and clastic rocks that give us more of an environmental signature, right? So right. that's why we're interested in them is because of this environmental signature. And you can tie that environmental signature, like you just said, to different exact same environmental signatures in different locations. And that's how we start to define different periods and then even going all the way down to, you know, ages in the geologic time scale. So with your work in paleomagnetics, I'm kind of curious here, how well can you give the age of a rock? Just say, uh, I, I know this means nothing in geology if you say garden variety, sedimentary <laughs> rock. But in general, how good would you say you can do? Well, it really depends. Um, paleomag is certainly one of these techniques that have helped sort of shape uh, the geologic time scale. Um, and I said I don't care about igneous rocks because I work on sedimentary rocks. But igneous rocks are very good at holding their magnetization from when they were born. Right. Made. Whatever you want to say about rocks. I anthropomorphize them a lot. So Your rocks are your children. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so um, these igneous rocks are really good at holding their magnetic signature when they were made. And, I mean, really good within, you know, a couple of million years. And you can tell that paleomagnetically. Um, so igneous rocks are definitely good for that. Sedimentary rocks have a whole lot of different problems with that because of all the things that have happened to them over their lifetime, and that can change their magnetic signatures. And this is a big problem in paleomagnetics right now because a lot of our paleomagnetic time scale may be based on things that we thought originally happened when the rock was made, but now as we take a look at them, we think maybe these were secondary magne magnetic events. And so now what we've originally defined um, as a certain time period based on the magnetics it may not be true. So in Paleomag, we're taking a look at how well we've defined things. I mean, granted, the larger geologic timescale, all kinds of definitions go into that, right? You can use geochemical age dating techniques, and there's a lot of different things that go into determining what is, you know, a specific time. Right. So with uh, an igneous rock, say, that just happens, it locks its magnetization in when it cools below a Curie temperature, right? Well... Curie temperature, if you're talking about magnetite, yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> or what, what would you call it if it was a different mineral? Well, each, each different mineral has its own specific name for it. So it's called Curie temperature because that's um, they were working on magnetite when they defined that. But you're absolutely right. So there's okay. specific temperature that locks in a magnetization. But sedimentary rocks, you've got little granules maybe falling through water and being rotated by the Earth's magnetic field or maybe folding or reheating or all kinds of nasty things that could happen. <laughs> yes, so that's exactly right. All kinds of nasty things could happen and could reset the magnetization of these rocks. And so therefore, something that you think is the magnetization when the rock was formed was actually recording the story of something that happened to it way later on in that rock's history which is what we as paleomagnetists want to tease out. And I know you guys have a, a whole bag of tricks of <laughs> drilling all Paleo kinds of different tricks. sites. And, uh, 
doing yes. doing some different things to try to determine maybe if a magnetization say was before after or during some kind of structural event and it, it seems like the answer is almost always during uh, <laughs> well that's a problem uh yes <laughs> we think a lot of it happens during uh we're working on better defining i mean using using mathematics and statistics to better analyze the data we have to see if these magnetic events are truly during or if they're slightly before, slightly after. Um, so that's constantly evolving. I mean, there are problems with any sort of age dating thing. There's not one silver bullet, which is what someone that's not a geologist might be thinking. Like, why don't we just apply, you know, why don't we just apply uranium, you know, radiometric dating to all these rocks? And then we've got definite ages. Well, all rocks don't have uranium. <laughs> So (laughs) there's a problem right there. And it's sort of true for all these different age dating techniques. They work in really specific conditions and they work really well, but those conditions aren't met everywhere. Right. I mean, there's lots of different isotopes and not only different isotopes that may or may not be present in that rock, but different isotopes are useful over different age ranges. Uh, Exactly. Because you can have isotopes that decay really quickly so, like, carbon-14 dating doesn't work on rocks, really. Well, it does, but only really young rocks. Right. Because it decays so quickly, and then that decay signal is gone, right? So you have to go to different isotopes over different age ranges to determine what the age of the actual rock is. And those isotopes aren't always present in all these rocks, and it's hard to tie them globally as well because there are different environments happening in different parts of the world in different time periods. And this is where you start to get sort of bogged down on the enormity (laughs) of defining geologic time and all the problems that could go into it. Yeah. And so is there a a body that defines geologic, the official geologic time scale? Uh, Yes. So there's this international commission on stratigraphy. All right. And stratigraphy just means different strata, so layered sedimentary rocks that are deposited over time, right? You start depositing on the bottom, your stratigraphy gets thicker and thicker, and now you've got this big package of rocks. And so there's this international commission whose job it is to set the standards for the geologic, the international geologic timescale. And this is the one that you get on all the little cards and bookmarks and everything when you go to conferences. Uh, well, actually, there's more than one time scale. <laughs> because of course. <laughs> <laughs> Here in America, we like to do things our own way. So our own, we're working on um, combining the sort of American geologic time scale is moving more towards using this international a geologic time scale as set by this International Commission on Stratigraphy. So that we're all using one language to discuss rocks around the world. And it just makes it easier for scientists to know what other scientists are talking about. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a, uh, a complicated thing. I know there's always been a problem between not only the U.S. and kind of the world now with standard <laughs> metric systems and everything else, uh, but always defining any kind of physical quantity of length, weight, and especially time. Uh, yes, yes, that's um, that's a very good point. Uh, I know that's probably something that we're going to talk about, these definitions, 
because we all need to be on the same page before we can move forward, right? I can't imagine how many historical mistakes were made based on these simple conversions or lack of agreement between what two different scientists were talking about. Oh, there's there's tons of examples. And I mean, of course, there's recent ones of uh, spacecraft crashing into Mars because of unit conversions. Uh, right, exactly. So we, we can do an entire show on units, unit conversions. But I think maybe next week we should talk about time and the definition of time on kind of a, a shorter scale, a modern what is a second and how are we defining days, calendar years, and how are we correcting for all of the kind of idiosyncrasies of our planet and nature in right. terms of time? Exactly. So down to the second. I mean, and that's what most humans, that's how we live our cycle of every day, right, is based on this 24-hour clock. No, not at all. And we have time now to such a fantastic precision that it seems useless in geology, but a lot of modern <laughs> geology that's done with modern tools relies on knowing time to something like the 16th decimal place in terms of frequency. I, exactly. I mean, there's a whole aspect of geology called geodesy, right? Which is right. talking about where you're at, X, Y, and Z coordinates, but also integrating this time component. That's how we track movement of big underground igneous complexes, right? Because the ground's constantly moving and it's super important to understand those movements to maybe predict eruptions. Right. So I think we should uh, save most of that for next time. But did you have anything else that you wanted to add about geologic time before we head into uh, everybody's favorite segment? <laughs> well, just the, uh, I, I think it, is worth every geoscientist and every person's like while to actually sit down and try to contemplate the enormity of geologic time and all the work that goes into trying to define these units and what's the importance like why do we care well the importance is so we're all on the same page and so we can have an accurate understanding of how the earth has evolved over its you know four plus billion year life cycle like it's just something worth thinking about how we got where we are today. And yeah. plus, uh, you know, it's always good to look at what's happened in the past to see if we can use it to predict things that could happen in the future. Right. Everybody loves a good model. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, I put a link in the show notes to all kinds of little mnemonic devices to help you remember the geologic time scale. If you need <laughs> a little bit of extra help like I do. Uh, that's my favorite assignment in my classes is that I make everyone write down their mnemonic devices for remembering the time scale. Many of them contain expletives or <laughs> are not appropriate for <laughs> for broadcasting, but they're always really funny. <laughs> so, Yes, share. all the ones at this link that I've seen are clean. So, <laughs> But we'd love to hear yours. Um, if you've got a cool mnemonic for the geologic timescale, where can they send it to us, John? Well, if you have an interesting mnemonic, you could tweet it to us. We are at Don't Panic Geo. Or you could send it to us via email. It's show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And if you're really adventurous, it would be great if you use the voice recorder app on your phone and recorded yourself uh, saying this geologic timescale mnemonic and sent it to us, and we'll play it on the air. And thank you for your response to our plead for reviews in iTunes to help other people find us. We've had a few ratings, and I will actually call out the people that have uh, written a comment for us. So thanks to H.S. Rabinowitz. 
all about that quake and <laughs> Darth Geodude. <laughs> yes, thanks for those. And keep your comments coming in. We'd love to start some actual discussion on the website about some of these topics that we're talking about because science is all about sharing your ideas with other scientists. You never know what's going to come out of a seemingly innocuous talk about geologic time and what it could make you think about in your own research. Yeah, absolutely. So does that mean we're ready to go to everybody's favorite segment? I think we are. <laughs> it's fun paper Friday. And in the spirit of kind of talking about time and maybe how long we can prolong our time, uh, this is a, a paper that I found that talks about wearable activity trackers wearable activity trackers so these are these little um gizmos that everybody has on their on their wrists and stuff now is that what we're talking about or are we talking about apps too they're apps they're everything so actually the the point of the study was to compare a smartphone app to the trackers that you can wear on your wrist or in your pocket or on your hip and see how how accurate the phones were because everybody well okay they say in there two-thirds of adults in the U.S. own a smartphone. <laughs> and not everybody owns a fitness tracker on their wrist, and not everybody wants to wear one. Right, exactly. Um, I will say, I don't want to you know, blow the whole ending of it yet, but I was really surprised by how accurate some of these devices are. Yes, and how inaccurate. Uh, <laughs> um, that was really the best part of it, actually, is the one device that is specifically for tracking stuff is the most inaccurate with the widest standard deviation out of everything. Right, so the, the Nike fuel band was by far the loser with a standard deviation of over 100 steps for a 500-step <laughs> test. <laughs> Which is unbelievable. I mean, I've got one of those little free pedometers, and I wear it every once in a while and track it against my Galaxy S4 app um, just to see the disparity. And it's quite large, but it's really funny to me that the one thing, you know, that's specifically for this has such a massive <laughs> standard deviation. Like, that's unbelievable. But the smartphones were really good at tracking, better than I would have thought. They were, and it was kind of interesting to see most of the smartphones were on the high side. So, you know, they had people walk on a treadmill, <laughs> and the smartphone said, well, maybe you did 550 steps instead of 500, which they were counting. Um, whereas a lot of the wearables were either right on the mark or under. Which is kind of cool to think about. Um, it's the one thing that might make me turn into an iPhone user is because it will make me appear healthier than I'm actually being. <laughs> That was the only that was the only upside I could see. The Galaxy, the uh, mean was actually below the number of steps taken. So that's what I own. And yeah, Android, thanks for making me work harder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I own the uh, the Fitbit Flex, which okay. also had a, a decently large standard deviation. It sure uh, did. Not as bad as some of the others. And it was shocking to me that the Fitbit One and the Fitbit Zip, same company, just different models, had the smallest standard deviations of anything by... I Maybe an order of magnitude. Oh, at least one order of magnitude, if not more. The Fitbit One was right on the money. I mean, it was just slightly below the actual number of steps taken, but the standard deviation is smaller than the little dot that they use to plot the plot the mean with. So that is super impressive. Do you know what the price point between those two is? Well, let me look. The Fitbit Flex is about $100. I just recently got one. 
uh, of course, before this paper came out. <laughs> and <laughs> That's the importance of doing your scientific research before buying, John. <laughs> right. So this is a Jur- Journal of the American Medical Association, actually. Uh, it came out this month. So let's see. You've got the Fitbit One coming up now. It looks like it might actually be a little bit less expensive. Whoa. Hmm. Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, okay, well, it's, it's comparable in price. We'll say that. Okay. It'll be linked in the show notes, of course. That's really interesting. I just assumed, just based on this plot of how accurate these things are, that the Fitbit One would be way more expensive because the accuracy is crazy. I mean, obviously, it's a small number of observations. They used about 27 or 28 people for each one of the different devices that they tracked, but still... Yeah. And I mean, their point, their stated point of the paper was they said that we're trying to make people at least trust their smartphone a little bit and say, well, if you're not going to wear a dedicated device, then your smartphone's an okay thing to do to track your health. And I know at least for me, uh, tracking this really encourages me to take more steps. Right. Exactly. So as long as you're not, as long as you don't have an Apple product that overestimates how many steps you're taking (laughs) the rest of them would encourage you and that's true and the nike fuel band the mean is actually way below the number of steps so maybe we're looking at this the wrong way maybe it's not (laughs) the inaccuracy but that it's it's causing you to do even more than you think you know than you think you're doing which is only going to help your prolong your your footprint in geologic time absolutely uh so i i do have I guess one more comment that some of the companies like Fitbit have been really ranging out into this internet of things. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't understand the internet of things very well, but we <laughs> well, can discuss I that. Later. Just got one of their scales that is a Wi-Fi connected scale. Oh my God. That is data that I don't want on the Wi-Fi. <laughs> Not okay. Not so okay. every morning you step on and it does your weight and your body mass index and shoots it up to where it goes with my step counts and food intake and all of that all in one place. It's actually really interesting. And they give wow. you some well, nice analysis tools. What was that quote about gadgets from a couple of weeks ago? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> about something unnecessary. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I mean, that's, uh, but it's a good point, you know, like now we have all these tools as people that really you would have had to pay for, you know, with a personal trainer and a gym and all this stuff. And these things aren't free, but a lot of the apps are nominal fees and shockingly they do really well. Mm-hmm. The, the only thing in this paper that upset me was they said that all of their statistics and maybe some of their plotting, they didn't say that specifically, uh, were done with Microsoft Excel. <laughs> upset you? You mean excited you beyond belief? Yes. <laughs> That was my favorite part of the paper, really. (laughs) (laughs) So that is our Fun Paper Friday. It's Case et al., Journal of the American Medical Association. Link is in the show notes. So, Shannon, do you have anything else to add before we sign off and let folks get back to their day? Uh, I'm just going to get on watching that video about what it's like to ride a two-foot asteroid into Earth's atmosphere. (laughs) Are you going to, you know, do the Doctor Strange love cowboy hat riding the... <laughs> well, is there any other way to ride an asteroid, John? <laughs> I, I don't think so. If it was good enough for a nuclear bomb, it's good enough for an asteroid. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, 
Where can they find us if they want to get a hold of us before next week's show? Well, please leave us either an audio message or good old-fashioned comment at don'tpanicgeocast.com or also on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. You can email us old school show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And as always, you can find John at geo underscore Lehman and myself at Shannon Doolin. That's right. So give us a shout. Thanks for listening. And next week, we'll see you to talk about defining time. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.